text. And I'm, I'm trying to basically take what could be four sermons uh, and put them into one. So, Bob, I appreciate your prayer and ongoing prayers during this message. Well, we're looking at Jesus' first statement about the church in the New Testament. This is the first time that the word church uh, is used in, in the New Testament. And I was recently visiting a friend of mine who pastors a church in Savannah, Georgia. And I went up there and uh, he's newly appointed as the pastor there. And he gave me a tour of the building that the church owns. And I probably should have declined the tour because I struggle with building envy from time to time. And so he took me in he saw the office with the built-in bookshelves and there's extra space on the bookshelves and there's a nursery the size of the sanctuary and there's crown molding and uh, they don't have to put things away when the service is done because uh, it's their building. And this was one of those times where I was really struggling with building envy. And in those moments, I have to remind myself that the church is not a physical building. The church is not a physical building. It is actually... When we see it in the scriptures, it is something far more beautiful, far more precious and eternal than a physical building will ever be. The church is the people that Christ has purchased by his blood, and it's the people that he is building together in maturity and in unity of the faith. And Christ does not need a physical building to do that. In fact, a physical building is a new phenomenon in church history in many ways. And today... At the end of our service, as I mentioned, we'll be receiving new members into our church. And so this week, in uh, anticipation of this, I got to do one of my favorite administrative tasks, and that is adding photos to our church photo directory. And I love doing that because next to the Bible, my favorite book is the San Harbor Church Photo Directory. And I, I, I'm not joking. And I have a lot of books, too, good ones. Because every time I look at the church photo directory, it reminds me of how gracious God has been to build this church and how he does it in a very mysteriously providential way of bringing so many different people from so many different backgrounds. I mean, one of the delights I get as a pastor when I get to visit with you all is to hear the very stories of how God has worked and orchestrated your lives. And and some are, you know, it's just marvelous what God does in, in so many ways. And so when you hear the stories and the testimonies, you're reminded that the church is not a physical building. It is the people that Christ has redeemed that he is building together. And more importantly, it gives me a fresh reminder that the church Christ builds is not ultimately built by any human hands. It's not built by human ingenuity, human innovation. It is built by the sovereign work of God as he works in and through his word and through the instruments of his people that he has redeemed by grace. So that's what we're going to see this morning in Matthew's gospel. We're going to see the church that Christ builds. And it's not a physical building. It is a spiritual one. So as we walk through this passage, we're going to look at four essential elements of the church that Christ has come to build. What kind of church does he build uh, when, in fact, he does build one? Well, the first thing about the church is that the church is defined by a core truth that it is built upon. The church is defined by a core truth that it is built upon because the church that Jesus builds is a church that treasures and preserves the truth. One of the imageries of scripture used to describe the church is that the church is both a pillar that holds up the truth and it's also a fortress that is designed to protect the truth. So it's it's supposed to display the truth of the gospel, but it's also at the same time to be a fortress that protects it. And 
the essential core truth at the center of the church is the identity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The identity and Savior of our Lord and Jesus Christ is the core truth that defines the church. It's the continental divide between believer and unbeliever, between true church and false church. And Jesus gets at this core truth by asking his disciples a series of questions. The first question is in verse 13. Look there with me. He says, who do people say that the son of man is? So he starts with a general survey question. He wants to know what they've been hearing from all the crowds that they've been spending all this time around. So Jesus has been among the crowds, among a you know, myriad of peoples. And he wants to know, what, what have you heard people say that I, that I am? So look at verse 14. Here's the answer. Some say John the Baptist. Some, maybe John the Baptist has come back from the dead, even though he's killed by King Herod. Some say Elijah, prophet we've been waiting for. Others say Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, or just one of the other prophets. So each of these answers indicates that people, when they hear Jesus speak, when they see him do his works, they know there's something special about him. He's at least on the level of a prophet, but they, they don't really see much beyond that. Perhaps he's a prophet, like what was promised, but they don't see him as more than a prophet. Well, the second question is in verse 15. And Jesus moves from the general about the crowds to the specific with the disciples. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? So he gets very personal with them and he puts them right on the spot. So it's like when you're having a conversation and you're talking generally about a subject, maybe you're talking generally about politics and how things are going and the person turns to you and say, but who are you voting for? It gets very personal in that moment. And that's what Jesus is doing. He is putting them on the spot. He is personally confronting them with the question because he wants to know not what they've heard, but what they know, what they think. And with this question, this is really the membership question of the church, as it were, the membership interview question. Who do you say that I am? It is one of the most searching questions that can ever be asked of us. It is the most important test question that will ever be placed before us. Who do you say that Jesus is? And studying to answer this question is the most significant studying we will ever do. To study to answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is, is the most significant studying you will ever do. Because knowing the right answer has eternal consequences. And so Peter, as a representative leader of the disciples, is the first to stand out and answer. And here's what he says in verse 16. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And this is really a key turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. This is a light bulb moment for the disciples because they finally grasp something of the reality of who Jesus is. Because up to this point, they've marveled, they've been amazed, they've heard him teach with authority, they've seen him do works of wonders, but really they've been asking questions rather than answering questions at this point. Who is this that even the winds and waves obey him? But yet they don't, they don't quite know the answer. And finally now, the disciples, being separated from the crowds, don't just see Jesus as a prophet. They see him as the Christ, the son of the living God. And so these two titles really help us understand who Jesus is. He is, on the one hand, the Christ. And this title highlights, really, his humanity and how he's come to fulfill all the offices of the Old Testament that were promised and anticipated that someone greater would come. So the Christ is really something that simply means the anointed one. Because in the Old Testament, 
Whenever God would want to publicly identify someone for a special office like king or priest, he would anoint them. So remember when Samuel comes to the house of Jesse, he's like, who's going to be king? And is it, you know, the older one? Is it this taller one? You know, it's David. Well, then what does he do with David? He anoints him with oil, signaling that this is the king that God has chosen. Or when Aaron was set aside as priest, God anointed, or Moses anointed Aaron with oil, signifying that he is the great high priest. So the Christ, the anointed one, is simply a shorthand way of speaking about all the prophecies, all the promises, all the hope that the people were wrapping up in this ultimate savior that was going to come. Who was going to be the one that would fulfill the prophecy that there would be one greater than Moses, a high priest whose work would once for all be sufficient and the promises that a serpent would come and crush the head of the serpent. And so when Peter gives this title to Jesus, he is testifying that this is the one we have waited for. We do not need to look for another. That was the question that John the Baptist's disciples brought to Jesus. They came to Jesus and they said, are you the one we're to wait for or should we be looking for another? And now the answer is, this is the one. We do not need to look for another. He is the prophet greater than Moses, whose very words drip with divine authority and can work wonders that only God can do. He is the priest that is greater than Aaron, who can make the unclean clean. And he can make the guilty to be forgiven so they can draw near to God. Here is the king greater than David, who strikes down spiritual enemies which is what he does when he's dealing with all the spiritual forces of evil. He's showing that he's a mighty conquering king like David, and yet he needs no sling and he does not need five smooth stones to slay his enemies. So he is the Christ. In addition to that, Jesus is the son of the living God. If the Christ highlights really his humanity and the offices he fulfills, the son of the living God highlights his deity, the fact that he is not a mere man. He is the God man. Because think of what the father said to Jesus in Matthew 3 when he was baptized. This was his anointing. He said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. And so when Jesus does what he does, we are to see that he is the son of the living God. He's equal with the father in power and glory. He and the father are one. So when all of his works ring with divine authority, And when all of his words drip with divine authority, we're to see that they do that because he is equal with the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And so this is the great confession. This is the core truth that is to define the church. This is the core truth that the church is to be built on and to preserve. The identity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And The scriptures remind us that this is a truth that will always be under attack. And so Jude mentions that we need to contend for the truth as the church. We need to contend for it. It doesn't say be contentious for the truth, but it does say contend for the truth. And when we contend for this truth, we need to know that we face a battle where we have attacks on two different sides. On the one side, we face the erosion of this core truth as different cultural forces seek to undermine it. So, for example, relativism says that, you know, who says that Jesus is more important than any other spiritual figure? Jesus is just one figure among many. He's no more important than anyone else. Postmodernism says, you know, it doesn't really matter what you believe about anyone. It just matters what you feel. 
what, well, you know, what's, what's true in you personally. And then activism says we need deeds, not creeds. What would Jesus do is more important than who is Jesus. And then the revisionists, like the cults and other groups, would say, you know, let me tell you who the real Jesus really is. Because an angel showed me this golden tablet that I found in the mountains of New York, you know, by myself. And trust me, you know, I was sober when I found them, and I know the truth about Jesus. So you have all these different cultural forces that are seeking to erode this core truth of the church. And so Christians must be able to confidently and valiantly defend the core truth of the identity of Jesus Christ. We need to be able to answer the question, who do you say that Jesus is? Because when we have vague and obscure notions about Jesus, it is like what Jesus said. It's like building your house on sand. And a house built on sand cannot stand against all the eroding forces of culture that would come against the truth. Or to change the metaphor, in order to be able to spot the counterfeits that are out there, you need to know the true, genuine, authentic thing. So we need to know who Jesus is. Well, I said there's two sides to this battle. On the other side is the battle to fight against the decentralization of this truth, the bumping it off the center of the church. Because when it comes to the church, the one thing that must be the main thing of the church is the identity of our Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing else is big enough and powerful enough to help keep everything else in alignment other than the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so when the gospel of Jesus Christ is bumped off center by different things, by style or personality or program or political agenda or even other doctrinal stances, the purity and the unity of the church will suffer greatly. Because when something else moves into the center, when Christ shifts away from the center, the church itself starts to shift and move away from purity and unity and holiness. And so we need to make sure that this truth is always central. The most important question, the most important thing is who do we say that Jesus is? This is the core truth of the church. So that's the first essential element of the church that Jesus builds. Now the second one is that the church is sustained by a divine promise. The church that Jesus builds is being built because he promises to build it. And we need to know this divine promise because it is easy to look out over the landscape of the church and get very discouraged and become very cynical very quickly. Because we can look at the scriptures and the ideal picture they paint of the church, and then we can move to reality and see the church that actually exists in present life, and we can see that there's a great discrepancy between those two things. And we can think, you know, what's the point? Is, is this institution even worth it? It's a little bit like when you order food off the menu. You see the picture of what it looks like and then when it's actually served to you and there's quite a discrepancy and you wonder, you know, have you been deceived? But with all things spiritually, we need to walk by faith and not by sight. When we look at the church with the eyes of our fallen, you know, flesh, we don't see what we ought to see. But when we look through the lens of scripture, we see it from a divine perspective and we see it as Christ sees the church. When we walk by sight, it's as if we look at things and we see them in a carnival mirror. Remember, you know, those, those 
you know, local carnivals that you go to and you, you walk through the maze with the mirrors and it distorts you and you wonder, you know, do I really look like that in real life? Well, we need to put on the lens of scripture because it removes the carnival mirror image that we get and it helps us see with Christ's vision. And so the specific lens we need to see the church through is the promise in verse 17 to 19. So look at verses 17 to 19. And Jesus answered Peter, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. There's the heart of the promise that he gives. And the gates of hell, they will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So from this promise, we are told about the builder and owner of the church. So in verse 18, notice the possessive pronoun that Jesus uses when he speaks about the church. I will build your church. No, no, that's not what he says. He says, I will build my church. I will build my church. It's always a big red flag to me when you can't tell what a church is actually named because you can only find the name of the pastor on the website, on the bulletin, on everything. It's also a big red flag to me when church members give, but they give with the seeking of notoriety because they want whatever they give to to be named after them. That indicates to me that people have lost sight of who the true builder and true owner of the church is in the first place. It is Christ who came from heaven and earth to seek and save the lost. It is Christ who purchased the church by shedding his own blood. He was the stone that was rejected, but that God has made the cornerstone of the church, the most important stone that the church is built upon. We need to remember that the church is his church, not anyone else's. And this helps us see the church rightly, because the church may look foolish in the eyes of the world. It may not look pretty to us all the time, but in Christ's sight, the church is chosen and precious to him. We may be discouraged by its division and impurity, but Christ promises that one day this bride that we see with blemishes and spots will be washed pure, clean, and white and will be presented to him without spot or wrinkle on that final wedding day at the end of history. So do not let what the church is now or how it might have fallen short of your expectations hinder you from eagerly anticipating the fact that Christ will perfect his bride that he will one day, we will all one day be in the perfect church. It will just never be on this earth. The moment that you join any church, you've joined an imperfect church and you've made it slightly a little bit more imperfect, as humbling as that might be to hear, but that's true with every single person. But remember, Christ loves his bride. He knows her spots and wrinkles better than we do. He sees them much easier than we see them. But his bonds of affection for the church run so deep that even when the church suffers, it's as if he suffers. I, I love the statement that Jesus gives to Saul in Acts 9, when before Saul becomes Paul. He comes and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He doesn't mention the names of the different Christians that Saul is persecuting. He, he says, you're persecuting me because Christ loves his church so much, his affections are so wrapped up in the church that anything the church suffers, it's as if Christ himself suffers. He's one flesh with his church. 
It is his church and he loves his bride. So when people ask me, you know, what's, what arguments would you give to, you know, why people should be committed to or, or join a church? So the strongest argument that can be given for why anyone should be committed to and passionate about the church is that Jesus is committed to and is passionate about his church. And he knows its faults way better than we do. No stronger argument can be given for why we should love the church. So that's the builder and owner of this promise. Well, also this promise, we learn about the instruments that Christ uses to build his church. He uses fallible instruments chosen and redeemed by his grace. Look at verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So Jesus singles out Peter, who answered the question, and he declares to Peter that he is going to be one of the key foundation stones upon which the church is going to be built. Now, contrary to some interpretations, he's not making Peter the first pope. He's not setting up some office within the church. But he is recognizing that Peter is a chosen instrument by grace that the Lord is going to use to build his church. When you read the book of Acts, especially the first 10 chapters, who is the one leading the church? Who is the one preaching? Who is the one suffering out front? Well, it's Peter. And Jesus does not choose Peter because he is the top student in the discipleship class. He's like, Lord, this is what you gave me. You know, it's a ragtag bunch, but I'll, I guess we'll go with Peter. He's the star of the show. That's not why he's singling out Peter. It's quite the opposite. Peter is a perfect example of the fact that it is the wisdom of God and the grace of God that builds the church, not the wisdom of man and the ingenuity and strength of man. Think of the transformation of Peter from the Gospels to the book of Acts. In the Gospels, he is so cowardly and afraid of suffering that he stands before a servant girl in the night and he denies that he knows Jesus in front of her. Then in the book of Acts, he's standing before thousands of people telling them that they have crucified the Lord of glory and that they better repent because salvation can be found in no one else other than Jesus Christ. And thousands do repent and come into the church. In one moment, he is spouting off with a mouth and doing things that are, you know, getting him in all sorts of trouble. He's pulling a sword and trying to cut off someone's ear because he wants to take the kingdom by force. Well, in the next moment, he is being persecuted for preaching the gospel of Christ. And he's leaving that persecution, rejoicing that he was counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. This is not owing to Peter. This is owing to the grace of God and how he uses fallible instruments for his purposes to build his church. And it should give us all encouragement that no matter what gifts we come with, no matter what background we come with, the Lord can use whatever instrument he chooses to build his church. Well, also within this promise, we read about the keys that Jesus gives the leaders of his church. Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now with, with all these statements, I could preach a whole sermon just on these, but let me try and, and summarize very quickly what these are. So he promises to give them keys. Well, what do keys represent? Well, in the ancient world, keys were a symbol of stewardship and authority. When the master of a house would leave his home, 
because he's going to travel or be away for a while, he would give the keys of his house to a trustworthy servant who he was putting in charge of the home while he was gone. And he basically said, with these keys, you represent me while I'm gone. So I'm kind of putting you in a place of a steward. You don't own this, but you are in charge of it while I'm gone. And so there's a level of authority that comes with possessing those keys. Well, what are the keys to be used for? Well, it talks about binding and loosing. We can think of opening and shutting. And the practice of binding and loosing was a common practice among the Jewish leaders. To, to bind something was to forbid or to not allow a practice within the Jewish community. So think of the Pharisees and Sadducees related to the Sabbath. You, you couldn't do a certain practice on the Sabbath because you were bound by them from doing that. Or loosing is a practice of opening or permitting or allowing something to happen. So as with the keys, you kind of open the door. You allow a certain practice to happen. For example, you couldn't eat pork. That was, that was unclean food. But they did say, the religious leaders did say you could eat broth from pork. You could drink the broth from pork because it's not technically the meat, it's just the broth. So that's kind of the background of this, this imagery of the keys and of the binding and loosing. Well, how were the keys used by the apostles in the church? Well, think of Peter again. In Peter's case, how are the keys used to open the doors of the kingdom of heaven? Well, think about when he preaches the gospel on the day of Pentecost before the thousands and calls them to repent and be baptized. It says the Lord added to his church that day thousands upon thousands. Ones that Peter was the instrument that was opening the door of the kingdom of heaven to welcome all those people in. Or when Peter goes to the house of Cornelius the Gentile, Jesus sends him over there because this is a Gentile who's, who's seeking after God, who wants to know the truth. And so Peter goes there, he preaches the gospel to him, and the spirit comes upon Cornelius. He's the first Gentile to be welcomed into the kingdom of God. Peter uses the keys to open the kingdom of heaven to him. How about closing the door? Well, none of us have probably named our kids Ananias and Sapphira for good reason. It's because they're an example of how the keys were used to shut the door of the kingdom of heaven. They were part of the church. They were members there. And they sold their land but they lied about the amount that they were giving, that they sold it for, so that they could look like they were being more generous than they really were to the church. So they came before Peter, they laid their gifts down before him, and they were making it look like we're being, you know, extremely generous. But really they're being deceitful. And they were judged, and they fell down dead. It was an example of the kingdom of heaven being shut in their face. Or think of the Judaizers. So in the book of Galatians, Paul is dealing with these people who are coming and telling Gentiles that to really be a part of the church, you need to be circumcised. You know, it's not enough for a Gentile just to believe. You actually have to do these extra things that we Jewish people had to do. You got to be circumcised. You got to submit to all the regulations of the law of Moses. And Peter closes the door on that doctrinal issue. And he says, no, we are all accepted by faith. This is what God has said. This is what we believe as the church. So he, he shuts the door on that practice. So the keys are a symbol of stewardship and authority. So God has established within his church structures of authority for the good of his people. And in, in a sense, to the leaders of the church, he has given them a set of keys saying, you know, I, I give you a level of stewardship, a level of authority in the church. But every leader in the church must be mindful of the first point of this promise. I will build my church. Christ is the master of the house. Everyone else is merely a steward of the house. He is the builder. Everyone else is a temporary 
replaceable subcontractor at best in the church. And as with all of God's gifts, like the gift of authority, it is a good and a dangerous gift. All of God's gifts, because of our sinful tendencies, they're, they're good, but they're dangerous. And we need to recognize what they're, how to use them well so we can use them as a blessing. But we also need to recognize the dangers in ourselves and in the misuse of God's gifts. Because when authority is used rightly, it is a blessing to others. It causes, those, it causes people to flourish when it is properly used. But it is a curse when it is abused and misused. So the keys represent stewardship and authority. And then finally, within this promise, we read about the opposition that Jesus promises to overcome. Verse 18 says this, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So Christ promises that all of the spiritual forces of evil that are mounted against the church will not be enough to overcome the people of God, the church that Christ is building. He does not promise that the church will be shielded from any persecution or affliction. It's important to to note that. He says the gates of hell will not be able to overcome it, but he doesn't say that they won't come at it at all. There will be persecution and affliction. In fact, Jesus is gonna promise this when he says, take up your cross, deny yourself. But he does promise that no matter how much persecution and affliction the church faces, it will not prevail over the church. In fact, He's going to use the persecution and the affliction to actually grow and strengthen his church. Because one of, the, one of the marvels you read about when you study church history is that the church thrives and grows the most when it faces the most persecution and affliction. That has always been the case historically. So you see the church really flourishing, even in our day, in places where it is most under threat, like in China, like in the Middle East. And it's because it's one of the instruments that Christ uses persecution to actually mature and strengthen his people. And the imagery we should get of this promise of the gates of hell not being able to stand against the church is not of the church kind of huddled behind the walls or, or sheltered in place and then you know, the enemy is coming and, and banging down the doors and just before they break down the wall, you know, he beams them out and they're in heaven and they're safe. That's not the imagery you should get. In fact, the imagery you should get is of the church as an army storming the gates of hell. And it's them that cannot withstand the advance of the church against them because Christ will have dominion. He will spread his praise from shore to shore. His glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And I, and I immediately, when I think of this imagery, I think of uh, in the Lord of the Rings, the two towers, the battle of Helm's Deep. Perhaps you're familiar with that either from the movie, from the books. Well, at the beginning of the battle of Helm's Deep, it is the, the armies of Saruman that are advancing against those people, of, of Rohan, I believe it is. And they're the ones under threat. But that's not the image you should get of the church. It's the second part, when Gandalf comes, you know, riding on you know, the dawn of the day, coming down the hill, and he advances against the army. That's the picture we should get of the church, advancing against the gates of hell, and the gates of hell cannot stand against it. So we should not be pessimists in the church. We should be great optimists, or realists, as I like to say, because Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Well, the third element of the church, and we're gonna do these last two very quickly because I've touched on them many times. The church is founded by a crucified king. So they hear this promise. They, they hear this, you know, basically, you know, Jesus says, you're right, I am the Christ, the son of the living God. But then he starts to talk about things like suffering. 
and dying. And they go through theological whiplash, as it were. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those rides where, you know, you, you sit in this chair and it takes you up, up, up above, you know, the, the rest of the fairgrounds and you have this great view and then you don't know when it's going to happen, but all of a sudden you just drop and plummet to the ground. That's what the disciples are going through. He's the Christ, the son of the living God. He's going to build his church. We're going to advance against the enemy. Well, he's going to suffer and die. And they're just plummeting to the ground. Their expectations are being shattered. They're going through theological whiplash. Because the symbol of, he doesn't explicitly mention it here, but he will in just a moment. But they know he's speaking about the cross. And the cross, which is for us a common piece of jewelry or a decoration in churches, it was for them the most repulsive and offensive symbol that you could think of. It was the, the process of crucifixion was so gruesome that you were not allowed to speak about it in social settings, right? You know, we're not supposed to speak about politics. They couldn't speak about crucifixion because it was so grotesque and horrifying. And so Jesus says to them, though, that you, you may understand my identity, but you don't understand my mission. Who I am is, yes, the Christ, the Son of the living God, but what I've come to do as the Christ, the Son of the living God, is not what you think. I have come to suffer and die at the hands of the religious leaders and the Roman authorities. And Peter doesn't like this. He does not like this one bit. Look at verses 22 and 23. Peter took him aside. This is Jesus. He took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. So it's as if the disciple is now taking the place of the master and putting Jesus, the master, in the place of the disciple and saying, now let me tell you something that you ought to know. Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, so he just called him the rock upon which he's gonna build the church. Now listen to what he calls him. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Why does he call him Satan? Well, it's because, like Satan in Matthew chapter 4, Peter is being an obstacle to the mission that Christ has come to do. Christ has come to suffer. It's a cross before the crown. Satan offered Jesus the crown without the cross, and Peter is doing the same thing. Why don't you just take the crown and forget this cross nonsense, this suffering nonsense? They want to reverse the path that the Father has laid out for the Son. And so... He says, get behind me. Satan, he, you know, same thing, get, get behind me. He said in, in Matthew 4 to Satan when he was tempting him. Because Peter, his mind is set on the things of man. Peter has an idea of what their greatest problem is and that Jesus is the one who has come to solve it. Their greatest problem is Roman occupation, is the oppression of Roman rule. And they're gonna, they need to be an independent nation state once again, like in the glorious days of David and Solomon. And Jesus is going to deliver that for us. We're going to go into Jerusalem, not to suffer, but to conquer. Which is why, in the Gospels, you have Peter taking out a sword. He's ready, he's ready to take it by military force. And Jesus says, no, I've not come to conquer, but to suffer. Because Peter, your greatest problem is not political oppression, political opposition. Your greatest problem is your sin. And the cross is the greatest solution. I'm not here for earthly glory. I'm here to suffer for you because no cross no church no forgiveness of sins no adoption into god's family no citizenship in god's kingdom no new heavens and new earth to look forward to if there's no cross 
But Jesus says, I have come. I must suffer. Because if there's a cross, we can enjoy membership in the church. We can know no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We can know the love of being adopted into God's family. We can know the privilege of being citizens in a kingdom that will last forever. And we can know the hope of a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, in which every tear is wiped away. All suffering and sin and sorrow is removed. And that's only because there's a cross. Because Christ took the cross, he gets to wear the crown and rule over a new kingdom. And what Peter initially saw as unacceptable and reprehensible, when you read his letter, 1 Peter, you, you come to see that he embraces it as the hope and the foundation of the church. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. So the the church is founded by a suffering king. And then finally, the church is characterized by cross-carrying disciples. So when it comes to membership in the church, what we are going to do here in a moment is take membership vows. Well, in one sense, what Jesus does here in the last part of this section is he asks his disciples to take a membership vow, in fact, two membership vows. And they're membership vows that are really the opposite way that the world would market and pitch something to us. The way the world markets and pitches something to us is by telling us, when we join this or when we sign up, here's what you get. Here's the benefits that you will receive. You know, no contract, no commitment. It's gonna work all the time. And our customer service is great, which is always a lie. Customer service, never like that. If you want people to get in to an institution or to, to buy something, you have to know what they want and then know how to appeal to that. that. That's marketing 101. So think of the Burger King slogan, which is really the slogan of life. Have it your way, right? I mean, that's, that's the slogan of life. And by all modern marketing standards, Jesus does everything wrong and he does everything backwards. Because instead of appealing to their self-interested desires, he says the first membership value you must take in my church is that you must deny yourself. You must deny yourself. You must put to death the notion that you are in charge and that it's about you. That's what it means to deny yourself. You're not in charge and it's not about you. And to deny yourself means you take every selfish thought, every fleshly desire, and you seek to bring it in captivity in obedience to Christ. That's what it means to deny yourself. That's the first membership. And then the second one, he says, instead of appealing to their desire for comfort and ease, he says, you must take up your cross. So he speaks not just about his cross, but he actually has a cross for them as well. You must take up your cross. You must bear the cross, which means faithfully endure every trial and trouble that comes your way. The cross is the opposite of the idea of comfort. What Jesus is saying is, on the other side of this thing is not just endless bliss and and happy retirement and an easy life. It's actually suffering. It's trial and tribulation. And so you need to faithfully endure every one of these things that comes your way, and you need to do so with a heart that says, not my will, but yours be done. But then on the other side of that, he says, this is actually the path to life. On the other side of the cross is joy and glory, because whoever loses his life for Christ's sake will find it. He says, you know, what good is it to Gain the whole world. If you could have all of the power on this earth, if you could have all the prestige, all the pleasure, all the positions that this world offers, he says, what good is that if you lose your soul? But if you take up your cross, if you suffer, if you lose your life for my sake, 
in the end, you receive everything back a hundredfold, far greater, far better than anything this world could offer. So when I look at something like the prosperity gospel, which basically turns this upside down, it says, forget the cross. You can have all of the joy and the glory now. What I think is, in reality, it is, show, it is so short-sighted. Because in, in reality, the suffering we face now is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs anything that compares to this earth. If you want to mess around with the mud pies of this earth and ignore the joy that is doubled in heaven, have at it. But know that all you get is mud pies in the end. In heaven, in the joy that is awaiting us because of the glory that Christ has achieved through his cross, it far outweighs anything this earth can offer. And so that is the church that Christ has come to build. Let's pray.